The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Some of the analyst segments are sponsored as well. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. The following segment is sponsored by LT Gray Silver Corp. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. LT Gray Silver Corp. is focused on silver exploration and development in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. Find them on the web at ltgraysilvercorp.com. Join me for a conversation with a frequent guest of the show, David Morgan, the Silver Guru, an expert on money, metals, and mining, also a lecturer and an author. Mr. Morgan has written Get the Skinny on Silver Investing, available on Amazon.com. His website is TheMorganReport.com. David, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you, Ellis. I'm just looking at an article that you forwarded to me, and I know we've discussed this in the past, but it's been a while. And I'm not sure if we covered this specific point or not. China is reported to be backing its yuan with gold, and our own dollar is no longer backed by gold. What does this mean? Well, it's something that I looked at a long time ago, one of the earlier issues of the Morgan Report going back in the early 2000s. There was a meeting in Southeast Asia, and very few people knew about it. And it was about a gold-backed yuan. And I you know, reported it and said, you know, don't be surprised that uh, this is going to take place someday. More recently, just a couple months ago in the Morgan Report, I talked about there's really two factions vying for global dominance from the monetary system. And that is you've got the Anglo-American empire that's existed for quite some time and is still the dominating force since the U.S. buck is still the reserve currency. But China and Russia just keep accumulating more and more gold, and they're very happy to take it from the, the West because the West just gone on this brainwashing campaign, I'll call it, to uh, convince the majority that gold has no meaning in the monetary system when history proves anything but that. So now we see this coming out in the mainstream press where China is basically, you know, saying, according to this article, that they're considering a, a gold back yuan. I think it goes back to something as simple as he who owns the gold makes the rules. The short version of monetary history is pretty simple. Gold-backed currency stability, unbacked currency instability, and it goes back and forth. And that's a very, very simplified version, but the general idea is correct. When you have stability in the monetary system, you have greater production, more freedom usually, and people prosper. And when you have an unstable monetary system, you get eventually you get chaos. And it goes back and forth. This is nothing new. I mean, that's the thing about history is most people don't ever get any history background. So everything that's in front of them, they're getting from the mainstream spin media and don't really question anything and do very little critical thinking. And so it's all like, oh, this is brand new. It's never happened. But uh, the old adage, nothing new under the sun really applies here. 
So first they helped suppress the price of gold, then they accumulate it along with Russia, and then they make this announcement. What's that mean for the dollar? Anything immediate? Well, not immediate. I think, you know, it could happen. There's always anomalies in the financial system, and there are these uh, episodes in history where things do happen abruptly. But we've seen the facts, and the facts are slowly many countries have been edging away from the U.S. dollar several examples. One is the amount of purchases of U.S. debt by China has been reduced substantially. Secondly, you see many nation states that are going to trade currency to currency circumventing the U.S. So you've got uh, like a Russia-China agreement, you've got even Australia in the mix, you've got India, and all these countries are making agreements, Brazil, to make a trade basis each other's currency rather than using the U.S. dollar. The petrodollar is still in existence, and that's one of the big important facts that keeps the dollar strong is in order to buy oil, you still have to go through the U.S. dollar. People have tried to circumvent that, such as Saddam Hussein, who was going to go to the euro. He's no longer in existence. Gaddafi was going basically to a gold-backed system. It's going to circumvent the dollar for oil, and he no longer exists. So there are prices to pay if you want to get out of the petrodollar system. Again, you know, don't take my word for it. Form your own opinion, but at least do the research to uh, form an opinion. Don't just use your emotion. So the dollar supremacy reigns still due to the petrodollar, and it's being defended quite readily. Nonetheless, trade is more than just oil. And a lot of these trade agreements, again, are basis each other's currency. And the more important fact, I think, is where is the supremacy? Where does it lie? I mean, the gold standard is called a gold standard for a reason. You know, it's funny that we get kind of that broad brush, you know, the gold bugs. Well, one of the gold bugs are probably some of the best critical thinkers that I know of. And, of course, this is kind of speaking as one of the group. But nonetheless, a lot of the mainstream or the masses don't think. They just run on their emotions based on what the mainstream media tells them to think. And they are conditioned, like Pavlov's dog, if they say, well, that's conspiracy theory. So as soon as they hear that, they automatically go into this part of their neurotransmitters and say, oh, well, they'll dismiss it because, you know, so-and-so triggered that word to me. Rather than, you know, use their human ability to actually do some critical thinking or some research or both and investigate open-mindedly what's really going on. So again, I come back to something I think most people have heard, and that is he who owns the gold makes the rules. If China has enough gold now to back their currency with gold, in a sense, game over. Now, it doesn't mean immediately that things change drastically, but the trend will continue and probably accelerate. Should we be accumulating gold and silver and the Chinese yuan? Well, as far as currency play, I won't comment. I don't really know, but possibly. Certainly, it's appreciated versus the dollar. And gold and silver, I think we've been saying that for years now. Of course, you should accumulate some. And, you know, I just did a, a show with the Financial Sense News Hour a day or two ago, and we talked about what's the proper percentage. Some people get so enamored with learning the facts that they tend to go all in when perhaps they'd be better off not going all in. In other words, they put in too much percentage of their net worth into the precious metals because, unfortunately, the metals really go up and down price-wise quite substantially, as we've witnessed over the last couple of years. Nonetheless, I think if you don't have a position in physical metal, you're really putting yourself in a compromised situation, especially 
if something like this takes place in the future. And for me, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. I'm going to say something a bit off-color now, tongue-in-cheek, if you will. When are we going to become an economic-free zone linked to China, much like Hong Kong is? Well, I don't know. Doug Casey, who's probably one of the most outspoken that there is in the industry, I mean, he jokes about Europe being a housekeepers for the Chinese. You know, I use that as a metaphor, of course, but the idea being that, you know, China is the leader. China is the up-and-comer. Certainly, they are not perfect or have, and they certainly have some issues. There's political issues as well as economic ones. But nonetheless, the shift in power is very clear and very apparent. If you really want to see what's going on, in my view, I would suggest running a DVD, uh, looking at a film that's fairly recent called Looper, L-O-O-P-E-R. The premise is kind of an interesting sci-fi story, but the background story is basically gold and particularly silver, and also the geopolitical change between the United States and China. And this guy that's uh, one of the loopers, moves to China and it shows the advancement in culture that's gone on in the East versus what the U.S. looks like a few years out. And I agree with the premise. I think that this film depicts fairly accurately what we're going to be witnessing maybe five years out. And the place to be, according to this film, and not that I want to move to China, what I'm suggesting here is that the wealth, as an Austrian economist, Wealth is defined by means of production. Whoever's producing things is a wealthier country than people that have to buy from the producers. Certainly, if you are a landowner and you produce wealth, either growing something on the ground or digging it out of the ground, that's real wealth. And those that have that are in a superior position to those that don't. That's the micro scale, and the macro scale is the same thing. If you're in China and they're producing almost everything that the world needs or wants, and you are in a position where all you produce are pieces of paper, then sooner or later the dominance is going to be very clear. And that's, again, what I'm suggesting is that the shift is moving east, and it will continue to do so. I mean, I think one of the biggest advocates of what's really going on is someone that's far more notable than I and has a much bigger following, and that would be Jim Rogers. I mean, Jim Rogers says... You know, teach your kids Chinese. Make sure that they can speak Chinese. That is where it's going to be in the next century. You know, I was in a business meeting just the other day where I was told exactly that. What's fascinating is that you live in a city such as Los Angeles, New York, Toronto, or Vancouver, and there are many Chinese with their hands in a variety of businesses. It's just the way it is. And if you happen to be doing business with Chinese partners, you may be doing very well. Otherwise, we're not producing much individually, as you say, here in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, we are somewhat shifted drastically. I mean, from being probably the greatest economic power ever to where we are now has been a substantial loss. And, you know, the unemployment figures show that. And even the people that are employed, I mean, look over the last decade or so, a lot of people have had fairly good jobs that were high-paying and high-skilled, a lot of those have been removed. They've been outsourced. They've moved. You know, you can blame NAFTA. You can blame a lot of things. But the point is that it exists. And a lot of these highly-skilled people have moved into jobs that are really substandard to what their skill set is. And then you have, unfortunately, very unskilled labor that needs to be educated at some level to hold a better job type of thing. So it's really a mess. And the Chinese, you know, they don't have the social safety net that the U.S. has. So they're motivated. I mean, these people are motivated. (laughs) They like to eat, just like everyone on the planet. So if you don't have a social safety net and you're not guaranteed, you know, food stamps, you are motivated and that means that you are going to take seriously your education. You're going to take things a lot more seriously because you uh, have to compete. 
So, unfortunately, there's not a lot that can be done about this as far as the major macro trend. This article is probably somewhat of a trial balloon, I think, to see what the reaction will be, see if the mainstream picks it up at all. But nonetheless, I do think this is a situation that I do believe will happen. How soon, whatever. The repercussions in the article, I think, are fairly accurate. No one really knows. But anyone that goes back on a stable currency system, China's the most likely is going to be not only the dominating currency, but if they're also the biggest producer, they will be in dominance. And this is something that's already taken place. I think most people have enough of a cursory understanding of basic history to know that the sun never set on the great British Empire and that the, under the pound sterling system, the silver standard, that England was the dominant force in the world for a very long time, and then that was usurped by the U.S. of A., and that's now being usurped by the East, primarily China. You know, you see more news of this type in Chinese and Russian publications that publish in English than you would in the U.S. press. And this particular article did come from a Russian publication. It seems like you get a much more balanced look at what's happening in the U.S. from foreign entities and not so much right here. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, I absolutely do. And it's very unfortunate because one of the best things about freedom is freedom of the press. And there is really no such thing in the mainstream press as the alternative press like the Alice Martin show. But as far as getting the truth from any of the mainstream press, forget it. These things are owned by very elitist type thinkers that lean one direction and have an agenda. And this stuff is spun in a certain direction again and again and again. And of course, we think... Uh, I shouldn't say we, I certainly don't, and, and most people who get their news from the internet probably don't, but the majority just buys into the news. Well, the news is so slanted, it's unbelievable that you're much better off sourcing news off the internet, looking at it from even the BBC, which I'm not a huge fan of, is a little bit more open than anything coming out of the U.S. press, but you should be looking, in my view, at stuff coming out of very many sources. You should look at coming out of Europe, coming out of Russia, coming out of China, coming out of anywhere but the U.S. I mean, you can use the U.S. as a contrast point, but basically if you're getting your news from the U.S., you're not getting news, you're getting propaganda. We'll be right back. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp., trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. Silver has been considered a precious metal for 6,000 years and currency since 600 B.C. It's been commercially mined in Mexico since 1530 in mineral-prolific and mining-friendly Sonora State, where El Tigre Silver Corp.'s 5,000-meter drill program is now underway. El Tigre's properties with gold and silver mining concessions span approximately 267 square miles. With an attractive share structure and a strong, proven management team, El Tigre Silver Corp. is poised to identify a resource in an area that from 1903 to 1938 produced 75 million ounces of silver and 380,000 ounces of gold. Additionally, their tailing stockpile is currently progressing to production. Learn more about El Tigre Silver Corp. by visiting their website, eltigresilvercorp.com, or click through El Tigre's logo on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'd like to jump back to our discussion about the Chinese. Really, in essence, we are seeing survival of the fittest in business and capitalism, free trade on a global level with the Chinese trumping most other countries. And since we can't compete in the U.S. any longer, we're losing out. 
I hesitate to say, like we should. Yeah, I mean, you know, that might sound anti-American. I don't know really how to respond. Let me just pause for a second. Well, you and I are both patriots, David. I like to think that this is a patriotic discussion. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, yeah, Whitehead and Hart are for everything that America stood for in the, in the beginning. It's just that that has, been, has changed so drastically. It's morphed into something almost opposite of what it started as. I mean, if we were allowed to be more free and basically produce what we want without all these regulations and oversights and everything else that's going on, the bureaucracy that's been, gotten way overburdensome to the average individual, I think that uh, the, you know, the United States of America could certainly compete with anybody. But the problem is that the uh, political structure has become so burdensome over time and these trade agreements and everything else that basically thwart any real economic activity and then, of course, the bigger thing on top of that probably is the banking system. The banking system was destroyed under the Clinton administration when they took out the Glass-Steagall regulation, and they basically let the Wall Street banksters rob the commercial banks of their funds and gamble with them. And, of course, this led to the too big to fails, and now the burden is on the citizenry to pay back these loans that were lost by gambling debts instrumented by Wall Street. If we had Glass-Steagall, the commercial banks would never have been able to put their money at risk, and that money would be in commercial banks, and that would be going to farmers, that would be going to building local infrastructure, and that would be going to the local people. But that was, again, taken away when Glass-Steagall was destroyed. So those protections in the banking system, I think, have been one of the biggest problems that have made it all very, very difficult for us, the U.S. of A., to get back on track. Well, along with the banking system in place that you've just reviewed, and maybe this is a leading question here, along with liberal progressive politics, the gap is only increasing between the haves and the have-nots, the wealthy and the poor, which is exactly what the left side of the old fence has been rallying against since they first pushed out their baby teeth. It's completely counterproductive to their own constituents this philosophy. Very ironic, isn't it? I mean, basically, if they want equality and everyone to be equal, all of these left-type policies have done the opposite. And it's unfortunate, and you're correct. I mean, the best way for people to become their best is to be free and allow the individual, which is what a republic is. I mean, remember when the story about Ben Franklin coming out of the Constitutional Convention was asked by that lady, what have you given us? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it, ma'am. Now, whether or not that's a true story or not, I think the point is well made, that that requires a moral population that's educated and constantly vigilant. And we've been anything but. I mean, we are to blame for a great deal of it. But to think that, you know, if we just get the right people to redistribute wealth, and that's going to make everybody better... That's not thinking, and that's not the way this country was set up. It was set up for everyone to have enough freedom to do whatever they needed to do their best so that everyone could do their best. And if you have that kind of a system, then you get massive wealth creation, and the individual determines with their voting of their pocketbook, so to speak, what they want and what they need, and it's a very prosperous way to go. Well, hopefully the Chinese will lead us back along that path. <laughs> Ironically, it looks like that. Certainly, there is the top end that is communist and all that. But, you know, I don't like to get any political arguments because they're emotionally based. But having been there, 
in a lot of ways, they're freer than the U.S. Now, not in all ways, and we could have a, you know, discussion about the party and all of that, and I don't really want to get into that, but, you know, having been on the ground there, there's a lot freer in many areas. Tell us about the Morgan Report. Okay, just want to let everybody know the best way to follow us is to get on our YouTube channel, Silver Guru. The Morgan Report is a monthly publication. We've gone back to the basic service, which is very cheap relative to our peers. Everything about the basic service and the basic plus service are over on the right-hand side of the website. I did two videos so you can actually watch those and get a pretty good feel for uh, what they are. And if you get on our free email list, which is a weekly publication, during that first few weeks that you're on that, we will offer you a 30-day trial subscription to the Morgan Report so you can actually try it out for free, get the full in-depth, behind-the-scenes, so to speak, stuff off of the report for free for 30 days. See if you like it, see if it's for you or not. David, thank you again for joining me today on the program. Uh, thank you. My pleasure. I've been chatting with analyst and newsletter writer David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com, or listen to the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety on iTunes. This segment has been sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. El Tigre Silver Corp. is focused on silver exploration and development in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. Find them on the web at eltigresilvercorp.com. Getting hungry? Eat knowledge. Find it at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Dudley Baker is the editor of CommonStockWarrants.com. Mr. Baker has 35 years of accumulated knowledge and experience in trading stocks, options, leaps, futures, options on futures, and warrants. As part of his service, he provides insights as to when insiders are buying and selling and issues buy and sell recommendations based on his research. Dudley, welcome back to the program. Great to be here, Ellis. I remember way back in 2012 in the good old days, or maybe the not-so-good old days, you said things were going to perk up in July of 2013 when we were in the slump that seemingly we've been in since then and we may or may not remain in for gold. And here we are near the end of the month, July 2013, do you still feel that way? Well, I'm sure feeling better today. We've come a long way. Gold really got has really gotten hit hard, down as low as about 11.86 on gold. Right now, we're probably up about well, hundred dollars an ounce higher, around the 12.80 range as we record this. And I'm starting to feel really good. That not only do I think the low is in place, but I think from the playing the calendar here, that we should start seeing some good strength coming into the gold market here uh, very soon. So net net, I'm feeling positive. Let's just say all of us in this. Uh, been playing the sector of the resource sector have been hit pretty hard by far the worst is behind us it's now a matter of either sticking with those good opportunities that are currently in our portfolios that have been beaten up or looking for new opportunities for those that do have some cash so these are great times for the contrarians who have been picking and choosing their stocks carefully and waiting for the proverbial lid to come off. You bet. And let's face it, that lid's just not going to come off tomorrow. I mean, this may be a, a, a gradual incline. wouldn't surprise me at all that gold is going to be substantially higher by the end of the year. Now, what does that mean? I could see conservatively, you know, 1500 1600 not back to the highs, but still, that's a long way from where we're at. And again, it's, I don't believe it's going to take a lot of strength in gold to finally get these miners, uh, the mining companies, going again. And so uh, we're going to look for any strength, any opportunity here, but 
net net I'm feeling good about where we're at and in one of the services where subscribers get to see my personal portfolio I've had a hold on many of those positions me just trying to tell my guys that if you're interested in that company maybe we should hold off on buying it for now and I'm at the point I may come in here as soon as we finish this recording and take off that hold and put it back on a buy. I think we're that close to at least saying that uh, you know bottoms are in place and there's a greater risk now, I think, of being out of these markets than being in these resource sectors. Well, those are the strongest words that I've heard you say this year, actually. Well, good. Good. But obviously, been a little too positive in the past, but I think everything is now leaning in our direction here. And literally, what we're looking at is like, so you can quote, we're not going to be rich tomorrow. But the deal is, I think this is going to take us into 2016. And I mean, we're going to have probably a grad, gradual increase at some point. Then the markets are really going to heat up and they're going to enter, you know, what we would like to think is going to be a parabolic phase for this resource sector into the year 2016. We're going to have the big peak and the big blow off. So question I just ask everybody, can you wait three years? Hang with us, hang with these markets, and I think everybody is going to be greatly, greatly, greatly rewarded. Then what are we supposed to do then in the coming three years to make moderate gains? Well, again, it's just finding these opportunities right now. So, uh, again, my subscribers know I am not a trader. I am uh, like to be you know, a long-term investor. So it's a matter of those opportunities are right here in front of us today. Uh, a lot of those in my portfolio... You know, I'm not looking to sell those one to three months from now. I'm looking to to watch those stocks come back up to where they once were. And then it's probably going to go then to a substantially higher level. So if you already are, say, fully invested, just hold tight. Don't be looking for an opportunity to sell near term. Ride this out. And you get into the 2015, late 2015, early 2016, this is when this whole parabolic phase should be coming in. We're just going to be greatly rewarded. So investors need to do little or nothing different. If you're looking to buy new stocks, look at it from a multiple-year time horizon right now. If you own stocks, look to hold them for a few more years. This is what I'm personally going to do. That's the way it's meant to be. Now, you know, what I'd, I'd like to chat about a little bit about here is that we're just previously referencing the resource sector, but flip it over to what's going on in the U.S. markets right now. The Dow's hitting all-time highs, I mean, on a, a nominal basis here. So it's like, wow, that, that's pretty cool. I mentioned we had one individual that they called this morning and we chatted and a, a new subscriber and uh, he just happened to get me on the line. It was just a, a really coincidence. And he was looking for a place to get the information on the bank warrants that are trading. And that's like, we're the guys. We've got all that information. So if you're looking to play the U.S. markets and all the strength, and you know, if you've been listening to CNBC recently, you'll hear you know the Kramers and others on the program talking about a lot of good positive stuff for the banking sector. There's a lot of these banks in the United States that have long-term warrants. And what I'm talking about, out to 2018, 2019, many, many years. Now with our new service, Common Stock Warrants, where we've now come into the U.S. market and providing the same great coverage on U.S. companies that we've been providing on the warrants trading in the resource sector, it's opened up a world of new opportunities. So diversification can be a good thing. And so it's it's looking at maybe we should all have a little more balance in our portfolio. I mean, I guess at heart, I'm still going to always be a resource investor. But 
as I see great opportunities in the U.S. market, especially with the long-term warrants, I'm going to definitely be considering that approach myself. Explain to the folks that don't quite understand what warrants are, what they're all about. Good point. Well, number one, I'd like to thank, visit our news website, commonstockwarrants.com. Second line or second paragraph is our definition. I want you to read it just like it is, so it's, it's pretty simple. It's actually our opening line. But stock warrants give the holder the right, but not the obligation to purchase the underlying shares at a specific price and expiring on a specific date in the future. That should ring a bell to anybody that's ever bought a call option in your life. This is basically the same definition. Slightly different with stock warrants, where stock warrants are actually issued by the company. Stock warrants are issued by the company. Options are actually written. You and I, in an individual or a company, can actually create, be the writer of a call option. But stock warrants are really a security issued by the company. And they will trade just like a stock with a symbol, and they'll either be trading in the Canadian market on the Toronto or Venture Exchange in the United States, the warrants, many of them are trading on the New York Stock Exchange or on the NASDAQ Exchange. We're seeing some really good liquidity in the U.S. markets, the AIGs of the world trading hundreds of thousands of warrants a day, so great liquidity. Opens the world of opportunities here for investors. And you've been involved with warrants for a very long time. A uh, long time. I mean, as an individual investor, actually, I go back to the 1970s when uh, I used to have access to the only other warrant service that there's ever been uh, similar to ours was the RHM Warrant Survey. Sidney Freed, and literally this goes back to the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. They've been out of business since the late 70s, and Sidney has, has since passed on in the early 90s. But I basically followed all of Sidney Freed's methodology. I own all of his books that he ever wrote. And uh, same theory, everything prevails today as it did then. There's absolutely no reason to change that methodology because it works. It's very simple and it works. But what we really give everybody in our database, whether you're interested in the resource sector or interested in the U.S. markets uh, that have warrants trading, it's all of the information that you need. It's what we just call the database of information on every company, every warrant trading. When does it expire? What's the exercise terms? and links to our leverage calculations. Everything is right there at your fingertips. Just click, click, click. It's all right there. The quotes are all in front of you. Everything is hyperlinked. And so a wealth of information at your fingertips. I've got to find that in a half a dozen words or so, somebody said, Dudley, so what are you really doing here? And I guess we're like an online newsletter with a database of information on warrants. Something to that effect. But the, the bottom line, it could take you a lifetime to find some of this detail yourself. But for us, we've accumulated this data. It's in front of you. And we're the only place that you're going to find this in any service. And there has never been another service that's covered Canadian warrants and U.S. warrants at one time. Have your subscribers taken a renewed interest in this sort of thing now? I don't have that feedback as to current subscribers. Just the individual calling in this morning was coming in specifically looking at U.S. markets. And this is our target market here at the moment, you know, for new people interested in the U.S. markets. And so only in the last couple of days are we starting to get the word out as to what we are doing now. So we've been literally for one to two months working behind the scenes 
putting this new website together. It's only been the last few days that we've comfortably started marking it with a press release that we did and probably went out early Wednesday morning. And so it's just been really, really recent. So now our mission is to inform the world of what we're doing with the Common Stock Warrant, just like we're doing here, is getting this word out into the universe. It is just a totally different investment vehicle that people have overlooked for decades. And, but yet, there's great opportunities, and there's absolutely zero reason why you should not be considering warrants as part of your portfolio. But a warrant on what? It always gets back to that company. So if you've got a company that you like, if that's a bank, if that's a resource company, before you run out and buy the shares, you should first ask yourself, is there a long-term warrant trading on this company? If so, you need to know what those details are. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. They have great leverage opportunity. It could be that warrant is trading, but it expires next week, which you want nothing to do with. So it's going to always be asking the question first, is there a warrant trading on this company that I like? And now let's take a look at the real details and the leverage, and should I be considering buying the warrant instead of the common shares? Is the risk factor the same, or is it just different? You know, I'm going to say the risk factor, it's almost going to balance itself off. A warrant, like an option, can expire worthless. The deal is, in buying a warrant, you're going to have much less capital invested. So even if it goes worthless, you're going to be better than, I mean, if you'd have bought the common stock and it really dropped substantially, you could end up losing a lot more money on, on buying the common as opposed to the warrant. So it is a trade-off. Yes, you can lose money on warrants. Have I lost money on warrants? I have lost some. Many other positions, I've made well over a 1,000% return on warrant positions. So the opportunities are incredible. And what, as an investor, you always want to be looking at those warrants that have over a two-year remaining life, minimum two-year remaining life. And uh, that's going to give you time. Time is now on your side and is your friend. And uh, when you're talking about in the United States, a lot of those warrants are, are five years or more from right now, especially in the banking sector. That's a lot of time. So I, I think that's going to give, well, just investors, that's what we need is time, guys, to work through the consolidation, say, on the resource side, but time for monster growth. And if the banking sector is the place to be, boy, a lot of a lot of the warrants trading, there, there must be 8 to 10 to 12 banks, big banks, trading in the United States, New York Stock Exchange, that have warrants trading. And uh, we've got the detail on all this for you. For subscribers we've got all the leverage calculations for you everything is right at your fingertips so pretty cool well dudley it's always a pleasure to speak with you thanks again for joining me today on the program glad this worked out ellis and look forward to chatting again soon i've been chatting with dudley baker of commonstockwarrants.com listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website ellismartreport.com Ian Chalmers is the Managing Director of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Alkane has significant assets of zirconium in its double zirconia project with rare earths and rare metals, and then gold in its Tomlingley Gold project, as well as copper in New South Wales, Australia. Ian, welcome back to the program. 
Oh, it's good to be with you again. Since we last spoke, you released a definitive feasibility study concerning the Dubbo Zirconia project. Would you care to bring us up to date? Yes, certainly. It was a, a fairly lengthy and in-depth study of the project, and we took into account all of the factors and all of the factors affecting the, the rare metal and rare earth industry at this stage. But the fundamentals are we came out with a capital cost of about $990 million, their Australian dollars, I should add, and... Through that, we generate a revenue of about $500 million a year against operating cost of around $200 million a year. So we have a $300 million cash flow per annum. Now, we've only based the initial financial model on a 20-year life, but the resource that we have there is really capable of, of operating for 80 years or even 100 years. So it's a, it's a long-life big resource, but financially, it tended to focus on the first 20 years. So we were very, very happy with that result. It shows how financially robust the project is, and that followed on many years of hard work to show how technically robust the project is. So for about $990 million after three years or so, you've covered the cost of a project with a lifetime of as little as 20 and as much as 100 years with what will bring you a net of about $300 million a year. That seems like a very insignificant investment for the return you're getting, although it's almost a billion dollars and that's not an insignificant amount. You're completely correct there and we always recognise that a billion dollars is a lot of money, especially for a small company. But you're right also that the, the financial result will see a capital payback inside four or five years. So it's a very strong project in that sense. But the billion dollars, we've already put in the steps involved to raising that billion dollars and last year we appointed two large banks, Credit Suisse and Sumitomo Matsui Bank, to work with us and work with Petra Capital to help us to put the whole financing package together and that process has started and we've allowed 12 months to get that done so this time next year I'd hope to say that we have project approval from the state government and also we have all our financing in place and it's a big task Uh, we certainly recognise that but the strategic value of the project helps that process and by strategic I mean the metals that we will produce certainly have strategic value to a number of countries and I can here single out both Japan and Korea for example a very active looking for alternate sources of supply strategic metals to to what they currently get from China. So there's funding available from sources like that. There's also funding available from other international entities that'll help us put that billion dollars together. Well, really, the risk is low as far as that is concerned, considering you have memorandums of understanding for offtake with at least four industrial entities in Asia. We also, of course, have one with a European metal alloy manufacturer for our niobium output, and and that deal, basically, uh, they'll help us with the technology to produce high-quality ferro-niobium, which they will then use themselves and also sell into the European market. So it gives us a bit of diversity because otherwise uh, all of the product is sort of fundamentally heading into Asia. At this stage, places like Japan and Korea and probably India. Also, we are seeing for the first time quite a bit of interest out of China, which surprised me a little bit because China is a big producer of rare earths and a big producer of zirconium chemicals. And for us to be able to look at selling some of our materials back into China was a little bit of a surprise. But certainly there's a changing set of circumstances in China as well. So it's good to open up other potential markets. Well, in previous conversations, you ruled out China at least for the foreseeable future, but it seems that strategy is changing. It is. As I said before, it was a bit of a surprise, but it came about after one of our marketing guys was in China, and he came back quite enthusiastic about the level of interest. So we have to say we're not changing our tact. We're always looking for places to sell our products, but that was a pleasant surprise. What are some of the uses for zirconium and niobium? Just 
start with zirconium first of all because it's a very diverse application. A lot of specialist ceramic applications and probably the most well-known one is in your car or your vehicle exhaust system. There's a sort of can-looking type object right at the very end of the car exhaust. That's the catalytic converter which uh, takes out all the nasty gases that are coming out of the engine. And in each of those there's about a half a kilogram of zirconia ceramic and you often hear about platinum palladium in that component but they do forget to tell you there's a, a major zirconia component as well and that's currently about 30 to 40 percent of the whole zirconia market and then there's many other applications in drying agents in paints and other general drying agents ceramic tiles for example zirconia is often used as the glaze and the colouring of a on the top of the tiles and then the final end result is zirconium metal which is the metal that holds the enriched fuel in place in a nuclear reactor because uh, zirconium is the only metal that can withstand the temperatures and the uh, neutron bombardment that you get in a reactor so it's a small but very high value end part of the business niobium is a little bit different it's more focused in probably 90% ends up in the steel industry in some way traditionally niobium steels have been used for pipelines bridges where you need high strength and low weight but what we have seen maybe five years or more or so ago, the auto industry started to pick up on the niobium steel. And what it does is a very small amount of niobium, a few dollars worth of niobium in the steel of a vehicle chassis, lightens it by about 10%. And that's all that we get all the emissions minimisation and fuel efficiencies with the lighter of the vehicle without any loss of strength. They're the two, the broad applications of, of niobium and generally the zirconium industry is an extremely diverse business. But as long as men and women roam the planet, there's going to be a market for automobiles. And let's take a look at China, for instance. That's a market where only 3 in 10 individuals have an automobile with 1.3 billion people. And that's rapidly advancing. Your market is endless. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you're, you're quite right again for China and again India as a... As a following in very similar path and it's not only the three out of ten but if you look at the size of the populations of both those countries I think China's 1.3 billion and India's 1.1 billion well if you take that percentage you end up with a large large number of automobiles uh, that are going to require a lot of components and that is across the board here with zirconium, niobium and of course all the rare earths that get used in autos these days. So if you're going to be a mining company in this market you'd want to be alkane resources wouldn't you? Well it's probably a pretty good way to put it actually. I, I quite like that concept and uh, yeah look we, we do believe we're in, we're in pretty good shape uh, we've got substantial cash resources in the bank we're building and developing our latest gold project which we'll be producing next year and, and having cash flow from that and then following on behind is the very large Dubbo Zirconia project so yeah we would like to believe we're in a very very good position and wait there's more the Tom Lee gold project that you alluded to I guess compared to the Dubbo Zirconia project it's small but compare that to most other junior gold companies out there and it's not small you're going into production in just a few months again that's correct I mean it, it's a hundred million dollar in investment to generate around $30 million a year. Current spot prices of gold about $30 million a year. 10-year project life we see at this stage. Again, absolutely, it's, it's not a big project in any terms, but it's a cash flow. It's, a, it's a, We call it our bread and butter business. It'll sit behind us, sit behind everything else we do. That cash coming in enables us to keep doing other things. It obviously 
to keep the company going, doing all the things it has to do corporately. Also to keep exploring. I mean, you know, the blood of any mining company is, is having a project pipeline, bring new projects on the stream. We're not talking large amounts of money, but just enough for these projects to keep flowing on. Once Dubbo's up and running in, say, four or five years' time, maybe there's another project, another gold or a gold copper project sitting behind it, ready to come on stream as well. So that all leads us to sort of the concept of a large cash flow business uh, that'll enable us to generate profits and, again, hopefully pay dividends, and that's always been the strategy. So Tomingly sort of is the building block of the foundation of which the big projects like Dubbo and other projects will follow on. This sounds like nothing but good news during the entire course of this interview. The caveat is the market right now. It's tough all over. Rare earths, rare metals, gold. It's just been a struggle. But yet your position much better than 95% of the other junior miners right now. What are you saying to your current shareholders and your potential shareholders keeping in mind that you yourself are a shareholder. Yeah, again, very good observation. And, you know, we would currently describe ourselves as being in the in the quadruple whammy. I mean, we fit in. We're a junior resource company, which have been hammered in the market. We're a gold company. We've been hammered in the market. We're a rare metal, rare earth company. We've been hammered in the market. I think I'm not sure what the fourth one is now. But, yeah, generally there's just a whole range of negative sentiment and when the market gets into this negative sentiment even having really good projects having the cash in the bank doesn't really seem to account for much so all we say to our shareholders is look hang in there we're very comfortable and confident things will change probably not this year but maybe as we roll into 2014 and then for potential investors is to look at it and say well you know right now the, the company's got a market capitalization about 170 million dollars we've probably got 120 million dollars in cash in the bank you know, a new gold project coming on stream it is significantly undervalued i guess the you know the judgment that people have to make is when do you buy i mean i can't put a time on that other than to say I think over the next couple of months is a very good time that, uh, for, for buying opportunity. I just can't believe the price will continue to go down, but in this market you just don't know. It's interesting because most people buy in when the market is high. It's just the nature of the Correct. human condition. Yeah. But the smartest and the wealthiest people, they get in when no one else is really looking. That's exactly right. If we all had that ability to pick the bottom of the market, we'd probably all be retired and living in some exotic tropical island somewhere. So I haven't quite mastered that yet. But it's an interesting thing to be able to try and predict where the bottom might be. Hopefully it is somewhere now and over the next couple of months, and then we'll, we'll see a general return, not just in Alcane, but a general return back into the resources sector. You're an Australian-based company, but you do trade on the prestigious OTCQX exchange here in the U.S. We do, and certainly ANKLY is our, our trading ticker. Um, and, you know, We've certainly done that with the view to attract the market in the U.S. to invest in the company if they don't want to come you know, via the international broking system that we have these days, but certainly that opportunity is there in the U.S. Ian, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for joining me today on the program. Oh, thank you, Alice. Appreciate it. I've been chatting with Ian Chalmers, president of Alcane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. In this segment, I'm speaking with Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Prophecy Platinum. 
Prophecy Platinum trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NKL and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. Prophecy Platinum is a mining company focused on the acquisition and development of Platinum Group Metals, PGM projects, in politically stable, mining-friendly jurisdictions. Prophecy's 100% owned Wellgreen property is one of the world's largest underdeveloped nickel sulfide projects with a very unique platinum and palladium resource that creates very compelling economics, economics that you'll hear about in this interview. You'll also hear about Prophecy's near-production Shakespeare project, a nickel project near Sudbury, Ontario. Mr. Johnson has a long history in the mining sector, beginning with Placer Dome, now Barrick Gold. He was a co-founder of widely successful Nova Gold and most recently helmed South American Silver. Greg, welcome back to the program. Well, it's nice to be back. Thank you. For our new listeners, if you don't mind, give us a brief summary of Prophecy Platinum. Well, Prophecy Platinum is a development stage platinum palladium focused exploration development company. And we have two projects in Canada, a world-class scale open pitable deposit up in the Yukon called Wellgreen, and then a second project called Shakespeare that's located in the Sudbury Mining District, which is the largest regional producing area in North America for platinum and palladium. My experience with platinum and palladium, and I've been covering them on and off for about 15 years now, relates directly to the automotive industry and catalytic converters. Do you see any change in that demand for catalytic converters as automobiles become more quote-unquote green? In terms of a change in demand relative to improving or increasing environmental requirements and regulations, over time the trend has been towards a greater amount of platinum and palladium which have the catalytic activity to basically eliminate the smog and the pollutants that are coming out of the exhaust. Over time we've seen the quantity of those metals go up in order to meet higher standards. The industry has been able to achieve some reductions, so better efficiency of the use of those metals, but we would expect that the trend will continue, particularly in the developing world where pollution has become, particularly smog has become such an issue. China and India would be good examples where they are going to be starting to adopt more stringent standards, which would mean more catalytic converters, not just in the cities, but also in the countryside. And with the rapid increase in the market for automobiles anyways in those countries, already China is the same size market for automobiles as the United States. There's going to be, we believe, significant growth and increase in demand for particularly platinum and palladium. Even though many of us now see China as this great industrial power, compared to the U.S., there are fewer cars on the road per capita, much fewer. Yeah, no, it's really striking. In fact, there was a a relatively recent report by Fidelity looking at automobile growth in various countries around the world. And they took a look at, in that study, some data that was put together by the World Bank that looked at the number of automobiles per 100 drivers in various countries. And as you can imagine, the United States was you know, near the top of that at about 90 vehicles per 100 drivers, and much of Europe was in the same area. And the reference line they were using was GDP per capita, so kind of a wealth factor. And what was striking is even though the Chinese market is as large in total vehicles as the United States, China has huge catch-up potential in terms of where they sit on that curve. Currently, you know, it was showing in that study about three cars per hundred drivers, and their GDP per capita would suggest more like 10 would be uh, if they were in trend with the other countries around the world based on GDP per capita. And so just the sheer catch-up to where they probably should be anyways, plus the growth potential as they become 
become a more mature, developed economy is striking in terms of the number of vehicles that it's likely looking at. And because their environmental standards are increasing so much to deal with their smog and pollution issues, uh, I think this is going to be a huge boom for uh, platinum and palladium consumption, which is really the only application for catalytic converters for eliminating those pollutants. Well, with production costs of near $1,700 an ounce in South Africa and a spot price of near $1,500 an ounce, are the majors turning to the politically stable and economically more friendly Canadian Yukon? Yeah, there's no question that major producers are going to have to be looking at where they can diversify their production if they've got these issues of labor and rising energy prices and social unrest in in their key production areas. And Zimbabwe has also thrown in nationalization into the mix just for (laughs) for good measure. The challenge has been that that's been the focus of the industry in that area, and that is a very enriched area. It's been one of the primary producers. There hasn't been a lot of exploration outside of those regions, Southern Africa and Russia. I think there will be, but this is a situation where right now where there's very few development stage projects even out there to be looked at. Ours up in the Yukon is one of the projects that with 7 million ounces, which is definitely world-class in scale already, it really stands out as a project that's unusual because it's also amenable to low-cost open pit mining production our cost structure is going to be much, much lower than these deep underground mines. And so, you know, we could have one of the lowest cost producers in the world. And the other benefit of open pit mining is that it's very scalable. You can build these projects at different scales and be able to increase production. And with a deposit this large and with highway access to the project and other infrastructure that's needed for development, this could be a a very promising project, certainly for our company, but also for larger companies that might be interested in looking at acquisitions in the space. With the Chinese buying up as much of the world's commodities, especially with regard to precious metals, base metals, rare earths, etc. In fact, a leading country in doing so, why wouldn't they be buying up what they need in platinum and palladium from you? Yeah, no, we're definitely hearing the same thing. In fact, we are hearing from Chinese groups that we're already in discussions with about the project, that they are concerned about security of supply of platinum and palladium. They recognize that South Africa is a problem in terms of being able to meet their needs. And with such a large automobile industry, they need a lot of metal. So we are already starting to see that interest in our projects. And because we're at a stage where we've still got a couple more years of work to do before we're being in a position to build them, we may see that interest express itself in investment in the company, financing of the project through to production. Those type of structures could be quite attractive. It tends to be that the groups that we're talking with on platinum and palladium are more the end users or even the groups that run the smelters rather than the mining companies at this point. But there are also opportunities, I think, for some of the major metal producers who may not have exposure to platinum and palladium. So some of the big companies, whether they be in Asia or elsewhere, also to look at projects of of significant scale. Let's talk about how potentially undervalued your stock is and what you're doing to get the word out. Well, the entire sector has been going through a consolidation, Alice, as I know you are aware, for the last two and a half years, most of the equities hit kind of peaks sometime in 2010, 2011, and have been in a correction mode or consolidation mode along with the metals since that point. We're now at a point where this is one of the longest consolidations we've seen since the market lows for the metals in 1999 and 2001. And on a relative basis, if we take a look at the value of the metals mining company and the explorer developers, relative to the value of the metals today, we're at one of the lowest valuation points we've seen in the past decade or two. We're at the same levels on a relative value basis as 2008 and 2001. So this is 
truly one of those exceptional periods in time where investors who are interested in the space are able to buy names at very attractive rates, buy at times when others are selling, perhaps because they don't appreciate the overall dynamics of the sector and the need for these uh, fundamental metals as the world continues to develop. And it's one of the opportunities where high-quality names with good management teams and good assets in safe jurisdictions, I think, are going to be trading at significantly higher levels in the future. This is the kind of market, if we look at both 2008 as well as 2001, where once things start to change, they can move very, very rapidly. Greg, another great interview. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to having you back again soon on the program. Thanks a lot, Alice. We look forward to being back to update you again soon. I've been speaking with Greg Johnson, president of Prophecy Platinum, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NKL and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website ellismartinreport.com or download the entire program on iTunes. I'm Ellis Martin. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. This is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.